Welcome to Journey to Esquire, the podcast. I'm Jocelyn Hardrick, founder and president of Diversity Access Pipeline, Inc., the company behind this podcast and other great programs like Journey to Esquire Scholarship and Leadership Program, which provides $2,000 cash scholarships to third-year law students and internships to second-year law students, along with leadership training and mentors. And Journey to Esquire, the blog, which provides insightful articles to help navigate you through law school and beyond. Find out more on our website, www.journeytoesquire.com. Hey, have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, just like I'm doing now. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to another great bonus episode featuring Journey to Esquire and Oral History. In this episode, we pass the mic to Arthenia L. Joyner. She's a former state senator for the state of Florida, and she's a pioneer and has been a political trailblazer throughout her career. She was born in Lakeland, Florida, and her family later moved to Tampa, where her father owned Tampa's premier African-American nightclub, the Cotton Club. In 1960, while an 11th grade student at Tampa's Milton High, she participated in her first civil rights demonstration, which was an event that would shape her entire life. Further, as a college student at Florida A&M University and later at Florida A&M University's original law school, from which she earned her JD, she also participated in other civil rights demonstrations. In this episode, you'll hear all about those demonstrations and how it shaped her life and career. I thoroughly enjoyed interviewing former state Senator Arthenia L. Joyner, and I know you'll enjoy this podcast. Thank you. My name is Arthenia Joyner, and I'm an attorney in Tampa, Florida. You know, as I reflect back on my childhood, I remember when I was a kid, and I was born in Lakeland, Florida, and my father owned a business, and it was situated near our home, and I remember one day he came in, and he said, close the door and pull the blinds, the clan's going to march, and I was either four or five, maybe three, but it was so distinct. So my mom shut the door and pulled the shades. We didn't have blinds, we had shades. And she pulled the shades down and he said, the Klan is gonna march and I want everything closed down in here. And so. It happened, and then the Klan marched, and we peeped slightly out the window and saw all these men with robes and white hoods on, white robes and hoods over their faces. So this was my first encounter with vivid displays of intimidation because as a young black girl I had 
you know, been told, and I lived in a segregated society then, and I've been told that these men who wore these white robes and white hoods were dangerous and that we should, you know, not be anywhere near where they were. So it was somewhat of a frightening experience, but the day passed and they moved on. But that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the realization uh, of the introduction of me to to what it was like to be afraid of of people who hid their faces. And shortly thereafter, my father purchased a business in Tampa called the Cotton Club, and we moved from Lakeland, Florida, known which was situated in Polk County and was called Imperial Polk County. And it was, in fact, known as the heart of the Ku Klux Klan. And so the Joyner family uprooted and moved to Tampa. But I remember Lakeland vividly because I was born in Lakeland in a house on North Street, which today is known as Memorial Boulevard. And that is the first phase of my life. Well, when we moved to Hillsborough County, that was pretty much the end of my encounter with the Klan and my seeing it in action. Uh, in Tampa, we experienced what every <laughs> black person in America was experiencing the colored signs and uh, water fountains where you couldn't drink except on the colored side and the inability to be able to go and eat at a restaurant. And if I recall correctly, and I'm not certain now, so maybe not, but uh, shopping, we shopped. I don't know if we tried on clothes and maybe we did some things uh, I don't remember but I yeah we did try on uh, perhaps they had certain rooms but at any rate at Middleton uh, I was active with the student council and all the other extracurricular activities that I could get involved in and so George Edgecombe was the president of the Student um, Government Association, Student Council. So George uh, called some of us together in February of 1960, and I was in 11th grade, and George was in 12th grade, and I was a member of the Student Council. And so George called some of us together and said, we're going to uh, participate well, actually, George individually went to different students. And, and, and so you didn't know who all was being selected or being asked until we all gathered together. So George came to me right before it was time and he said, we saved you the last because you talked so much. Everybody in Tampa would have known that we were going downtown to demonstrate. I would never forget that. So, uh, we assembled and we went. And 
there were about 20 of us and about 20 from Blake and Shafter Scott was the president of the student uh, council at Blake High School and George was president at Middleton and and then there was Clarence Ford, the young man who was chair of the NAACP Youth Council. And he was really the person who went and talked to both of the student council presidents to assemble students to participate. And Reverend A. Leon Lowry was the NAACP president. And so um, together uh, we went. And we assembled, if I'm not mistaken, at St. Paul AME Church, historic church in Tampa, right downtown. And from there, we went to Woolworths. And we walked in and went and sat at the counters. And they closed down. And there was no service. And people came and watched and looked and, and I don't know if we were afraid. We had some trepidations, but we were young. We knew that we were entitled to all of the rights and privileges as every other person in America and we were ready to fight for it. And so we went down without any thought of possible consequences because we had all, we, we had grown up in a segregated society. We were living in segregation. Every day there was lots of prejudice and discrimination. And so, you know, when you're young and fearless and feel that you've been mistreated and, and discounted by people just because of the color of your skin, and you say, it's worth the risk. And, and we did. And there were some people who, you know, watched and looked and basically it was relatively peaceful. It was peaceful. Um, the police came, Reverend Lowry was outside, Clarence was right there at the counter with us. Um, and we sat and sat and they didn't open up and end of the day we left and it continued. And uh, the mayor was Julia Lane. And Julia Lane wanted to do what was right. And so he appointed a biracial commission. Reverend Lowry, I believe, Mr. Hammond, Clarence, some others were in it. And they came to a solution within a reasonable period of time and integrated Tampa's uh, lunch counters. And that was my first activism, I would say, as a young person. You know, I can still, I still have flashbacks of the Klan when I was a little girl. I had experienced discrimination from all my life, so it, it was a way of life. You were accustomed to it. They don't like you, you're black, you're going to be mistreated, you either uh, ignore it and keep going and do what you have to do because one-on-one uh, -on -one and arguments and all of that wouldn't get you anywhere. But once we had this united effort by high school students from Blake and Middleton who took a stand, then things started to change in this community. And from 
that point to this one, I have been uh, in search for and fought for and stood up, sat down, spoke up, whatever was necessary in an effort to seek justice and equality for black people in America. And I said, oh my, I want to be a lawyer like Thurgood Marshall. I want to fight for my people. And I never swayed from that decision. And I thank Ms. Dyrish Ross Perry Reddick for being that outstanding teacher that she was, consistent with what her mother was, Miss Clemmie James. So sixth grade came and there I was with Miss Jessie Artes. And Miss Artes pushed me to no end. So when the school had when College Hill needed a representative to attend a meeting at the school board with all of with students from every school I was the person selected and it's my understanding that you had to be selected by the faculty and each teacher would recommend someone and then at the meeting they had to put forth an argument as to why their, their student should be the one and, and obviously she prevailed because I was College Hill's representative and that was another important um, part of my life where I got an opportunity to interact with white students and brown students all at the same level where we engaged in conversation about what we thought that schools should do to improve uh, for the benefit of all of the students. And then from there I went on to Booker Washington Junior High School and uh, had wonderful teachers there who all inspired me to continue to to do good and to get my homework and I participated in all of the extracurricular activities that I could muster and then I went to Middleton and here I was finally you know on my way to my next uh, movement in life but at Middleton I was the captain of the cheerleaders I was uh, on the school I, I was on the um, board for the committee for the school yearbook I was like a reporter I was the announcer for the morning announcements and my outside activity was just wonderful I was a teenage social editor for both the Florida Sentinel Bulletin and WTMP. I was on WTMP every Saturday morning with Tom Hankerson. And uh, every day I made the announcements in school. And I remember <laughs> crazy incident in high school. As captain of the cheerleaders, it was my responsibility to lead the cheerleaders and whatever cheers or whatever at, at the time you know when you had when you were defense or when you were offense I had to call the cheers so here we are at the end of the biggest game of the year Middleton Blake 
and I'm standing on the sideline with the rest of the cheerleaders and we look up and we see the clock is winding down and Middleton is in the lead and the buzzer goes off and we run out on the field but lo and behold the ball had been snapped right before the buzzer sounded so there was still a play in motion and I ran out there And all of the football players fell on top of me. And oh my God. So that Middleton got penalized. Too many men on the field. And there was another down. And there was a possibility that we could lose the game. Because of my um, assertiveness of running out there. Thinking that the game was over. Not realizing that the ball had just snapped for that final play. Somehow I got out from under that huddle of boys and ran to the sidelines and they were able to uh, play do the last play and God was good because Middleton stopped Blake from scoring and consequently my life was saved and I was not banished forever because if we had lost that game oh I would have been mud in the annals of Middleton's history. So that was that was the most, oh gosh, I will never forget that. Everybody, so the next morning when I went to WTMP, I walked in and Tom Hankerson said, well, Artenia, <laughs> Tyke, right wing, Tyke Joyner just walked in the door. And he went on to talk about what had happened at the game and we laughed about it and That's one story that I'll live with forever. (laughs) So I graduated from Middleton High School in the class of 1961. And it was time to go to college. And I was really undecided. You know, I Howard, Clark, FAMU. I had been accepted at I think it was Clark, and that's where I said I was going. And a week before time to go, I said, no, I'm going to FAMU. All my friends were going there, and I wanted to go, and that's where I went. And I've never regretted it, because it is truly a university of nurturing and caring. It was like family. And um, I remember as a freshman, <laughs> Girls had to be in at 8 o'clock. Oh, my God. Every night. So those who were dating, you know, the boys had to leave at 5 minutes to 8. The lights were blinking, and we would have to run from the student union building on the set to get to the dorm in time. And it was so funny. Say, well, the boys can now go date the upperclassmen because they can stay out until 10 o'clock. So you really didn't know what was going on if you were dating an upperclassman. But wasn't my luck. I wasn't dating anybody. I was just hanging with the books. But um, I met a lot of people. I had, I developed great relationships during my freshman year. And... That was 1961. 1962, I pledged Delta Sigma Theta, Beta Alpha Chapter. 
I became the vice president and uh, the dean of pledges. So I was over a line. And I remember in 1963 at the Delta 50th National Convention in New York City at the Sheraton on 7th Avenue. That was the hotel where the convention was held and John F. Kennedy was our speaker. And I still have my badge from that convention. And I have my badge from the 75th and the 100th because that was 2013 because we were founded in 1913. So that was, you know, that first convention as an undergraduate to hear John F. Kennedy, oh, it was wonderful. But at the same time, America was in the throes of civil rights and people fighting for their rights and speaking up and speaking out and not being afraid and college campuses and so of course it came to Florida A&M University. There was Tallahassee, the state capital, and there was the Florida Theater a few blocks away and we couldn't even we couldn't go to the theater. Might have uh some theaters you could go upstairs. I don't remember Tallahassee and that theater having an upstairs because I wasn't interested in being upstairs. I wanted to be where everybody else was. So Patricia Stevens do, young woman, organized the students. Her husband, John Do, was either in law school at Florida and College of Law then, and he was there as she led the demonstrations and she had had encounters with law enforcement and I think um, something got sprayed in her eyes and she had trouble with her eyes, she had to wear dark shades, but she persisted and we joined in under her leadership and we demonstrated at the theater. And. Um, here was that opportunity as a young woman now from, you know, it started in high school, but here I was an adult still out in the world being treated as a second class citizen, not being able to eat at public accommodations or uh, restaurants or go to theaters and so when they organized and said we want students to participate, I was all in. I called home. My dad said, don't get in that mess. My mom said, do what your conscience dictates. We will support you. And it was good that she said that because I had made up my mind. And even if she had said no, I would have been there. It was part of my DNA. I got to fight for what I want. As, as a black woman in America, being the victim of discrimination that should not exist because the Constitution says, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all of us, I was equal to them. So I was willing to fight for it, die for it if necessary. You just had to do what you thought was right. And to me, it was right for me to stand up and demonstrate and speak out and tell America that, this is no way to treat us. My people built this country. We came over here in the bottom of slave ships. 
in the most horrendous conditions but we survived and we are the ones who have made America great and I will not be denied the right to enjoy all the rights and privileges to which I am entitled and so I distinctly remember that the court had said we could demonstrate as long as we were so many feet apart and and we did that and I have a picture of it it's in the Florida archives and it's on my phone that's my screenshot on my cover on my phone it's me and a young man from Fort Lauderdale John Mann as we are marching in front of the theater and uh, people came and looked at us and we saw some spat from a distance the cops were there people um, were uh, in the beginning they were closer than what we wanted them to be but once the parameters were laid out they stood away but there were efforts to intimidate us you know they'd have bats up under their coats uh, you could see something shiny which might have been a knife or whatever but we were focused our job was to carry our signs, to walk with our heads up, be respectable, and that's what we did. And it was May 30th, if I'm, 1963, and the D and and we were arrested. I know we'll forget that night. They threw us in the paddy wagon and handcuffed us and. Uh, and I was saying you know why why are we being handcuffed put us in the paddy wagon that's enough but that's what they did and subsequently the dean of women Dean Calhoun came and they released us all to her we were released on recognizance did not have to post any bond we were uh and, and so we were released, and this was near the end of the semester. And um, that was my first encounter. So we were charged with trespass, and the charges were dismissed. So that was the first offense. Went home for the summer, came back in September, and we started up again. And here we were, September 13th, and it was Tallahassee, and it was a warm day, and I remember I had on a white blouse and a short gray skirt, A-lined skirt, and we were demonstrating, walking in front of the theater, as we had done, very orderly, uh, nobody doing anything to incite any violence and we were arrested again and they took us to the fairgrounds and the fairgrounds was and they had cots there and it was the temperature dropped that little sleeveless blouse was not too good that night we were cold and we each had one sheet on the bed and one of the students petite 
young lady had sickle cell and she got very sick and temperature and she was cold. So we had to keep her warm and we gave up our sheets to, and held her in our arms. I won't forget that night. We asked the guards for some water so that we could try to bathe her down and get her temperature down. And she survived the night and and then uh, we were uh, charged and released and told when to come back to court. We were second offenders now. We went back to court. and never will forget that day. Um, and there's a picture somewhere in the archives of a courtroom full of uh, young women. And I remember uh, distinctly taking a bar of soap, a toothbrush, toothpaste, because we felt that we would be incarcerated this time. That, you know, we had been released, but we came back. We were second offenders. We were back at the point for the... So we were found guilty of trespass, second offense, and we were fined $500 in 90 days. Well, I had on this beautiful pink sack dress. I remember so well. You know, we were all dressed to go to court that day. I mean, everybody was well-dressed and ready to stand up to whatever occurred. So we were put in the Leon County Jail. And um, there was about 21 of us that, that day, I remember. And because true cigarettes came out that week and I, I didn't smoke and almost everybody else smoked so they sent all these miniature packets of cigarettes up in my name because they knew that I didn't smoke so they said you, you'll see that they're fairly distributed among the people who smoke it was crazy because everybody smoked then but I never did and so we uh, we stayed in the jail and Sunday came oh the food was terrible I remember the first morning the first time they fed us breakfast and it was like salt poke and hard grits and stale toast and I wouldn't eat it well let me tell you that night I got on my knees and said Lord bring me the cold hard grits the salt poke and the stale bread because I'm hungry. I had never been hungry a day in my life. And I said, I'm going to eat this because I am starving. So the next day, I ate what I considered terrible food, but I needed sustenance in order to keep my strength. The university sent out books. We were allowed to study. And strangely enough, when you... I remember the bars, the shadow of the bars on the pages of the books, you know, as you're sitting there behind bars with your books and you're trying to keep up. But you can see the outside because it faced Gang Street, the Leon County Jail. And people were going on, living their lives. You You were behind bars, but the rest of the world was still going on. And you know, you had thoughts about, well, what? I'm here, but at some point this will come to an end. 
Well, my dad called and said, well, I can get you out. And I said, no, you can't. If everybody can't get out, I'm not getting out. And many of the students have said their parents made it very clear. We don't have any money to pay to get you out of jail. You go up there and participate. You're on your own. So the pack was all or none. And so we all stayed. And Sunday came. And they called my name and said they had a package for me. And people from Tampa would know this name. But Alton White, the son of Moses White, who had... Uh, a restaurant and um, deluxe cozy corner on Central Avenue. Alton was the oldest child, and so he and I had a, a connection. The White family and the Joyner family was very close because both of our fathers were business people, and Alton was a student, football player. Alton sent 21 chicken dinners to the Leon County Jail that day. And my name to give to everybody. Oh my God, that was a great day. And it was surprising that they even allowed us to have it. But we did, so we ate well that day. And then days passed and we continued to, you know, read our books and talk to each other and interact. And then two lawyers showed up. William Kunstler from New York and out standing renowned civil rights lawyer and Tampa's very own civil rights brilliant lawyer Francisco Rodriguez his daughter is Dr. Sylvia Rodriguez a professor at the University of South Florida who uh, now is out there uh, carrying on the legacy of her father even though she isn't a lawyer I think she runs the Black Institute out there and they came to Tallahassee and arranged to have bonds set to get everybody out who couldn't afford to get out. So we stayed 14 days. My dad paid the prorated amount of the $500, $300 and some dollars. And those who could pay, paid. Those who couldn't, Francisco and Consular got, got them out. And we had a record. We were convicted of trespass, which was a misdemeanor. And I knew that one day that record would come back, but I I didn't care. I had to do what I felt was right at that point in time in my life. Thank you for listening to this episode featuring Arthenia L. Joyner. She had some great stories about her time in high school. And wasn't that funny how she ran on the football field and almost messed up that game? And so sometimes we look back in our lives and we remember the positive moments, the fun moments, the serious moments, and the scary moments. And so reflecting on our lives and legacies is an important thing for us to do. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to hear more about the Journey to Esquire Oral History Project, please visit www.journeytoesquire.com for more information. I'd like to give a special thanks to all of our supporters, especially our JD-level sponsors, U.S. District Courts, Middle District of Florida's Bench Bar Fund, and Agape Christian Bar Preparation Services, Inc. for their generous support. I'd also like to thank WMU, Cooley Law School, Tampa Bay Campus, 
for providing a space for the recording of several of the episodes of this podcast. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another great episode of Journey to Esquire, the podcast. Support, share, subscribe. And for more, visit www.journeytoesquire.com.